when we bought that company, we recognized that there was an opportunity to increase profitability of a smaller company, both in terms of purchasing power, but also process. This is episode number 41 of the Contractor Momentum Podcast, and joining me today is Scott Berman, owner and founder of Florida Window and Door. He runs a pretty good-sized window and door operation covering the entire east coast of Florida, from Miami to Jacksonville. He started about 10 years ago and has grown to over 200 employees. We cover a little about staffing and then jump into growth through acquisitions and the deals he's done. Now, for the quick plug, if you're not already a member, look for a link to our Facebook group, The Contractor Momentum Lounge, and head on over there to discuss this episode or ask any questions you might have for Scott or myself. Now, let's jump into it. Scott, welcome to The Contractor Momentum Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. Now, for you listeners out there, Scott is in the window and door business. He owns Florida Window and Door and a few subsidiary companies that he acquired. We'll talk about those in a moment. And he operates just across the state from me. I'm in the west coast of Florida in the screen enclosure market. His trade is very, I don't want to say incidental, but very related to mine and that we both work on the exterior of homes. And we're both in the Florida area. He's on the east coast. I'm on the west coast here. Scott, why don't you give our listeners the quick two-minute overview of Florida Window and Door and how you got into that business and what it looks like today? So Florida Window and Door primarily focuses on replacement window and door applications from Jacksonville to Miami. That's a big, big service area. It's a big service area. Most of the stuff we do, probably 99%, so I'll just say all, is all hurricane-resistant windows, doors. 99% of our business as well is replacement. So we're dealing directly with the homeowner. We're a licensed general contractor. So we're you know, fairly vertically integrated in regard to construction, although we don't do anything. We'll do like a cut into a, to a house or something of that magnitude, but we're not building any rooms or anything like that. We have subsidiary companies called Central Window, which is in Vero Beach, and Indian River Glass, which is in New Smyrna Beach. And those two companies focus on some new construction, contractors, a little bit more of the commercial side, primarily in residential as well. So it could be a condominium building, it could be a townhome, or just a regular builder. How I got into the business is I'm originally from Ohio. We were a window manufacturer in Cleveland, dealing direct with homeowners. And so it was primarily the same type of business, except in this case, we don't manufacture. And we sold that business in 2001, split it up and sold it. We split one part up in the manufacturing we sold, and then the other part in the retail. So you sold your first business there in 2001. What year did you start Florida Window and Door? I started Florida Window and Door in 2010, I want to say. In 2009, 2010. So, so is that like kind of a first retirement that you did for the nine years between 2001 and 2010? No, you know, we were, I was doing some other projects. I really didn't retire. For a guy like you, it's hard to retire. I know that. Yeah, I can't sit still. So yeah. we were developing some real estate. I have some other businesses on the side that I do. So I was busy. I also worked for the company that had bought us for a while. And like most people who sell their business as entrepreneurs, it didn't work out very well. <laughs> and so I ended up in Florida. And, and ultimately, that's really how, it, how I started Florida Window and Door. I knew the business. I didn't, candidly, coming from Ohio in the replacement window business and coming to Florida in the window business, diametrically different 
sophistication levels required. As you know, Florida is exceptionally regulated, very difficult to operate in. And it took us a very long time to really learn the market and divorce ourselves of anything we really knew from up north because it's, it's dramatically different. Could you give us some more examples there, kind of a what was so different between the two markets? I mean, are you saying that the window contractors and the window market in Florida are just, you know, a little bit more savvy, you know, a little bit more growth minded and organized and refined? Or is this, you know, more so on the licensing and regulation side of things? I'll start with the licensing and regulation side. In the North, you can basically, and I don't want to offend anybody, you can basically start a business with a pickup truck and a screwdriver or mm-hmm. a nail or you know whatever the tool is. Down here, you not only have to be licensed, but you really have to be familiar with the code requirements, the municipalities, the workforce down here, in my experience, is totally different. The work ethic is totally different. The ability of being able to keep people in their job from a longevity perspective and loyalty to a company is dramatically different. Would you say it's more of a challenge here in Florida to keep people longer term? By far. I mean, it's not even close. And it took us a lot, you know, candidly, it took us a long time to be able to understand that. The workforce in the Midwest, specifically Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, where we had offices, there's different types of trades. And as a result, I think that they are a little bit more conscientious of their work and they've grown up in construction and they understand construction and they sort of mid, they migrate to the window business. Whereas down here, you don't have that experience level. And I think it, it hurts you in the sense of being able to really build a, a qualified installation team. And I think we spoke about it yesterday, the shortage of labor on the West Coast. We Absolutely. have the same shortage of labor on the East Coast. And, you know, as a result of that, you have difficulties building a business. It's hard. And I think a lot of people fail in that because they just don't understand how to recruit and they don't understand how to build the loyalty you need to build in order for the tradesmen to stay with you. And I think it's a, it's a significant issue. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed when I look at resumes is you get a lot of guys down here that you know, they're just kind of jack of all trades, master of none. You look at resumes and it's like they did one year roofing. They did, you know, they were an HVAC tech for six months. They've done a little window indoor. But if you were to ask them to do either one of them or actually to be a lead installer in a specific trade, they're just a total flop. It's just a lot of job hopping. And I I don't have any experience in other parts of the country. But from what I've seen here and what you're saying, it sounds like that is one of the issues and one of the big differences between what you notice up in the Midwest. Listen, I I think that I don't want to paint a brush and label everybody in the South lazy and unwilling to work. But I will. But my experience has been that the work ethic is different. I won't say it's better. I think you can read between the lines from up north to down south. But it is definitely different. And I think that if, you, if you're coming to the southern market, not expecting to get an education in how the workforce is different, it's going to take you a, a long period of time to adjust to it. Absolutely. Going back to why we were successful in the beginning, when we first started was we prided ourselves on being on time. 
you know, a stupid thing like that was 55% of the battle of getting. That, that sets you aside. That's a differentiation point nearly. Right. So, you know, people are like, I don't understand how you're so successful. I mean, honestly, show up five minutes early. You, you, you got a 55% better chance of getting a deal. And I think it just starts there. And, you know, coming from the Midwest, you know, you don't really understand how good you have it in Florida because here we pretty much are never in a recession. There's always people wanting to move here. And when you're from up north, you know, in the Midwest specifically, you're used to bad economic times. You got to hustle. Yeah. And so the mentality is just different. And again, I don't want to say it's better or worse, but it's different. And I think it, I think that learning how to navigate the employment and recruitment challenges is a significant asset in order to build a business down so here. What, let's jump forward a little bit. How many employees do you guys have on staff now? We don't quote me exactly. It's around 260 or 70. I'm Holy not cow. So, so that's a lot. I mean, you, you guys are running a really good size operation you know, over the last 10 years from 2010 to now. What have you learned? What have you implemented? What have you done to actually build that workforce? Because you know, we just made it pretty clear that there's a challenge in finding workers and building a team and a labor force, et cetera. And those challenges exist in various forms, no matter where you are in the country. But you've obviously built up 260 employees. And, you know, for those of you guys out there listening, you know, know my business, GCA, we've got 60 employees. You know, you're five times the size of what I've built up. And I really respect you. And I have a lot of respect in anybody that's built up a team of that size. What do you think are your, the key elements? Or not what do you think? What do you know is the key elements? What's the foundation? What would you do, you know, if you're going back to building up from scratch again? Well, I think, ironically, it's hard to do it when you're a little bit smaller. But I think that if you would allocate a resource to continual recruitment, I think that you will have significantly more success than if you recruit when you need somebody. When you recruit when you need somebody, you're always recruiting under the premise that the person sitting across from you will be the savior. Will have the skills and be a savior, yeah. Correct. And I think that when you recruit from strength, when you don't need people, you'll be amazed at how many qualified people you'll find. And the other suggestion I would make is, and it, and it may be, you know, if you're a two or three person office, it may be as simple as giving your receptionist or that administrative assistant or whatever, saying to them, listen, I want you to spend 10 hours a week calling resumes, running ads, you call them, interview them, whatever your process is. I mean, 50% of the people you're going to call aren't interested. The 50% that are interested it may be less, but percentage-wise, the 50% that you interview or set up an interview are not going to show up, maybe even a higher percentage. So you're dealing with a very small pool of talent. But if you're continually looking, you will be able to scale your business quickly, and you will be shocked at who you will find. And you never know why somebody's leaving a job. The other thing that I would suggest is, and, and I think we have done a phenomenal job of this over the last several years is we don't hire people within our industry. And the reason we don't do that is we find that, th that we're trying to build a culture and we can't build a culture based on somebody else's retreads. So we take the additional time and, and it's easier for us at our size, but we take the additional time to indoctrinate them into how our company operates, what our philosophies are, and we train them in those philosophies 
and before they ever start with us or are able to even interface with a customer, go to a job, sell a job, whatever the case may be, they go through extensive training. And as a result of that, we've built from the ground up, which I think takes more time in the short run, but clearly has benefits to future growth in the long run. Right on. I couldn't agree any more with what you're saying. And I know one of the things that works out very successful for us is we've, we're consistently hiring like what you describe. And we budget that into, you know, our actual P&L statement, the labor that we're keeping on staff to train people. That's essentially, you know, how should I say this? I'm, I'm probably getting a little confusing. We hire people essentially and keep them on our income statement, not as direct labor, but as an overhead cost, just the cost of training. We're always budgeting to have three to four people on staff that are doing nothing but learning. I mean, they, you know, they might help out a little in the shop. They might be back up when somebody doesn't show up and go out onto a job. But for the first three to four months that they're working for us, we're just training them and assessing to see if they're actually going to stay with us. And after that point, you know, then we actually let them go out in the field and do things. But we're not hiring from a, you know, hiring from the position of, oh my gosh, we need somebody to be on a job next week and ready to roll. Because when you're in that position, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to really gain any traction and actually build a scalable business. It's impossible. But, you know, again, I was once told that you have to look at the analogy I was given, which I've lived by since I've heard it and I believe in it, is that you have to treat employees like leads. So in essence, you have to continually have leads to run your business. You have to continually hire employees and recruit employees to run your business. 110% true in this economic climate that we're in. Yeah, that's how we look at it. And, you know, it's a significant commitment, as you stated, both intellectually, but also financially. You know, and I think it's important that if you're trying to grow your business to set that money aside for that particular purpose, because I think ultimately it will pay dividends, not initially, but over time. Over time. It's one of those things that requires conviction. You have to understand what you're going to get in the long term, implement a plan and stick to it, you know, through the thick and thin. That's been the magic sauce for us and sounds like it has for you guys as well. Now, based on what you said there, it sounds like you're doing most of the work in-house, self-performing. You're not really using any subcontractors or anything. You're talking about in the installation side? Yeah, on the installation side. We have both. We let the installers choose which one they want. We don't mandate anybody become an employee if they if their wife, as an example, has benefits and it's financially feasible for them to be a subcontractor. We don't object to it. However, what we do is we hold the subcontractor to the same standards and accountability requirements as an employee. So we're still checking the jobs. We're still calling quality control on their jobs. You know, we're still, we're on them, although as a subcontractor, you know, they have the flexibility to work at other companies. We find that, you know, our pay structure is set up that it benefits them to work for us as often as they want. And and we treat them as if they're part of our company and part of our family, like anybody else. Gotcha. So how many, you know, roughly, what does your install breakdown look like? I mean, would you say 50% are subs, 50% employees? Which way do most people lean? It depends on office. And honestly, I don't have that number in front of me. I can get it for you. But I mean, I think it's not a percentage as much as it is a lifestyle and where people are relative to what they want to do for taxes or insurance or whatever the case may be. I believe, and I would have to check with my human resources, we also offer insurance to our subcontract. 
So, you know, they have the option of joining our health plan if they choose to. And, you know, so that, that's another hook in, in the direction of how we're able to get people to stick with us and work for us. Gotcha. All right. So, so you're training people and giving them the option to stay on as either an employee or, you know, go on and start as a subcontractor. But as a true subcontractor, they can work for other companies. And you're providing really an incentive-based pay plan that is better than any of the other competitors out there. If I'm hearing you correct. I mean, I don't want to say we're the best because I don't really know what other people do. But I would say that we are aggressive in our pay package to our contractors and our employees on the basis of trying to make sure that they are compensated fairly, incentivized fairly. And as a result of that, we believe that we have you know, significantly less turnover than the average home improvement company. However, I would add one caveat to that and suggest to you that in order to work here, you have to go through extenuous testing and pass a number of processes in order to work here. So if, if you're here, you're here for a reason. You're not here just because you walked in and said, I'm an installer or I'm a salesman or whatever the case may Absolutely. be. Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little bit. I know that since you started the company in 2010, you've acquired some other companies. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those, about the deals that you've done there and how that's ultimately you know, impacted and how that flows through and impacts the business that you initially started. So my general philosophy in this industry in general is that the smaller companies are going to get hammered by the manufacturers. If you look at the top of the food chain in our business, and I would say it's not only in our business, but we're focused for the purpose of this conversation on our business and our industry. I believe that if you look at PGT as an example, Custom Window, these companies are all either being bought out or buying out their competitors. And I think that the direct issue is going to be that they are going to continually put pressure on the smaller dealers, whether that's price, delivery, whatever the case may be, terms. So our intention from day one over the last several years has always been to get bigger and bigger and bigger so that we have a seat at the table. That's all we want is a seat at the table. I want to be able to control our own destiny. So we were approached a couple of years ago about a possible acquisition of Indian River Glass in New Smyrna Beach. And at the time, we weren't really interested. We weren't really prepared. But we had an issue with a manufacturer that had been doing business with us for many years. They couldn't keep up with our production that we needed. So we wanted to buy from one of the major manufacturers. And unfortunately, they didn't have any ability to sell us because of previous relationships or commitments in certain markets of ours. So you guys were dealing with a smaller manufacturer and you needed to a larger manufacturer to accommodate your volume? Yes, we needed that. But we also needed, you know, it's difficult to put all your eggs in one basket as well. So we were trying to diversify a little bit to mitigate risks that we felt that we would have in the long term. So it was, a, it was mainly production, but then it was also the mitigation of risk as well. So in any event, we called the business broker who had originally introduced us to the Indian River transaction, and we decided to buy the company, which gave us access basically through the back door to the manufacturer that we wanted to buy from. When we bought that company, 
we recognized that there was an opportunity to increase profitability of a smaller company, both in terms of purchasing power, but also process. So ironically, in that particular acquisition, I believe as of today, and I'm proud of this, exceptionally proud of this, we didn't really change much in that office at all. And in fact, I believe everybody who was working there prior to our acquisition is still working there, plus additional people. But we lost one secretary because she felt that the, the work pace was too fast. So we felt that it was a pretty good deal for us. It was a very good deal for us, in fact. If I could do it again, I would do it. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, but you know, with everything, there's challenges. But we were able to keep the model that they, we, we implemented some, some systems that we have as a corporation, consolidate some responsibilities in corporate as opposed to branch level. And it sort of laid the blueprint out for a second acquisition, which was Central Window in Vero Beach. And we did that about two years ago. And same concept and have had equal success there. And the staff is also there as well. And the difference between the Central Window purchase and the Indian River purchase is the Central Window purchase, the previous owners still work for me at that location. So whereas the Indian River owner left the day we took over. So it's it, it a little bit different dynamics in both deals, but I would say unequivocally, both deals were revenue positive for us, profit positive for us, and cash positive for us. So, you know, it's a unique way to grow, not for everybody, certainly has its challenges. And, you know, we get approached often on, on many other deals and we just haven't found another one yet, but we will. So on the Indian River acquisition, what you were really looking for there was access to a supplier that already had essentially an exclusivity agreement and could not, you know, could not accommodate you. Was there something like that you were looking for with the central window deal? Or was that, you know, just a straight up, this seems like a good company and, and I want to, you know, get my hands on it? The central window deal was totally different. The central window deal was primarily a geographic deal for us because it sort of split the difference between New Smyrna Beach, which is northeast of Orlando, right underneath Daytona, to Miami. So it gave us another distribution center there. There were no other reasons at that time to really do that deal other than it was given to us or shown to us and the location work. So at that time, you were covering Southeast Florida and Northeast Florida and Central Window and Door, well, as the name implies, put you right in the center. Got your new yeah, market territory. And, and to give you an idea, Florida Window and Door was, was basically at that time operating under one office from Melbourne to Miami. We were in the market, but we were sending crews up from our other office to get to Melbourne. Oh, wow. I mean, Miami to Melbourne is like a four-hour hike. Right. So it wasn't time efficient. But the deal parameters were pretty much location of distribution. That, that was the reason for that. So if you had a do-over, well, you already said this, that you would do both of them again. You don't think it would have been easier to open up an office in the central Florida area? Or would you still have bought that same business again as an entry into that market or as a you know, kind of a more proximate destination? So it's an interesting question. I would do the deal again because the numbers worked. You know, we are opening other offices and in the markets that we're looking at, we are not looking to acquire, not because again, we wouldn't, but because mainly we haven't been shown a deal that makes 
sense number-wise. We have the capacity to do other deals, but as you and I spoke about yesterday, the multiples on some of these deals you know, just make no sense. And I'm not a retail buyer, I'm sort of a wholesale buyer. And so if there's no upside, I don't really have any interest. So right now the pendulum is open your own office, go through the learning curve and, you know, build out from there. But if the right deal would present itself, we would strongly consider it. Not that I think it's the best way to grow, but it's all about, you know, it's all one deal at a time. There's no cookie cutter answer. It's do the numbers work? What's the staff like? How much volume do they do? Who do they buy from? What can you bring to the table that is that can add value that they're not doing now? You know, those are checklists that anybody who's looking to acquire a business, I would imagine, would ask themselves relative to the opportunity. And, and, and we would do the same thing. So I, I don't want to say no to any future deals, but I, I would say that, you know, we look at both and it just right now we haven't seen anything. One by one. So you mentioned, you know, kind of a little bit of a checklist process to, you know, what you look for when you're looking for a deal. For somebody that's looking to grow through actual acquisitions, what would you advise them to look for? What would you advise them or what process would you advise them to kind of follow or go through if they're considering it? If they want to get into either a new market or a new trade in the same local market or a different local market entirely, what what kind of advice would you give someone and what would you point them to do? I mean, what would be the very first thing that would be kind of the Scott Berman, so to say, benchmark of either, yes, this is on the table or no, this is off the table from the get-go? Well, the, the first thing I would do from an acquisition perspective is I would see why the owner is selling. I think it's an important understanding. It's important to understand why they're selling and what they expect from you when they sell. So for example, the Indian River acquisition, the owner was older and wanted to participate, but we didn't really need him. And he was more of a distraction than he was an asset. So I think you have to understand ownership's explanation and you have to believe in it. Like you can't, they're going to tell you one thing, but there's- that, That's what I was going to say, because you know they can tell you one thing, but that's not necessarily the truth. Right. But here's the flip side of that. If the owners, the person who's acquiring the business has to sift through those reasons of what they think are true and, and not true. But I will tell you that historically, the more you look at the reasons why the owner is selling and the more that you find the untrue of what he's ex- telling you, in my experience in looking at multiple companies, that will send up multiple red flags on the financial statements that you will see. So for example, if the owner is taking a ton of money out of the business and you look at customer deposits and they're not clearly marked, that's a red flag. If the staff has tremendous turnover, specifically among the sales staff, red flag. You know, what you're buying in these companies is you're buying, regardless of what anybody will tell you, in my mind, you're buying the people because you need those people to stay to make that company a success. So if you have a company, I just looked at one last week or two weeks ago, where it was about an $8 million company, and I asked to see the list of salesmen, not the names, but how many salesmen they had to make up for the $8 million. Absolutely. So they sent me the list. They had 12 salesmen. They had 12 salesmen noted over an eight or nine month period. 
But the problem was that of the 12 salesmen, four were left, okay, at the end of nine months. There were only four, one of which was the owner. And when you broke apart the owner's sales, the owner accounted for 35% of the sales. So what do you buy? It was an owner-dependent business. Correct. Correct. And so those are the things that I think you can fall into the trap on buying something where there's no value. If the owner's gone and he's selling personal relationships and he's been in the market for 25 or 30 years, which is in our case, what these companies were, and he's doing the sales, the company's not worth anything. Because you know, once you write that check to the owner, he's not going to be there six months or a year. And even if he is, he's not going to have the same vested interest. No yeah, matter he's not going to have that same fire inside as when he's, Correct. you know, Correct. king of the pyramid. Correct. So, and the other thing is, if the situation is that you make a deal with the owner and the owner has agreed to stay on, you will not be able to implement a lot of the changes that you want to make, that you think you need to make in order to make this company more successful, because the owner is only capable of running it the way he knew to run it. And he doesn't want to learn anything new. So those are the things you have to look for. And then you know, you can look at the other stuff. But to me, longevity of the team is critical. When we go into an opportunity, we're interviewing every employee that they have and asking why they're there, what they want to do, what they see is different. We profile every employee. And if they don't pass and we don't feel comfortable, we pass on the deal and the numbers could be phenomenal. I mean, we've looked at some deals where, candidly, they were absolute steals. But when you interview the staff, you're like, this is a disaster. I don't even know how this guy is making it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you got to be prepared for how hard you want to work at, at turning something around. So look at the owner, you know, figure out their motivation for selling, figure out if this is a key man. I like to call them key man businesses where it's solely dependent on the owner, the key man. Figure out if it's a key man business. You know, that that's on the kind of external side on the business that you're looking to acquire side. But what about internal, you know, in making the decision if this is a growth acquisition for us, if, if this is the right decision for growth for our company, what do you assess on that side of it internally? I think you have to look at the way they sell their product, the way they market their product, their gross margins, their percentage of admin costs, what you can consolidate into your other offices, your corporate office or, your, or where your main functions are being held like payroll and accounting. I think you also have to decide on whether you're going to operate these companies as independent financial entities or you're going to operate them as combined into your existing operation. What do you do at this point? What are your two? Everything we do is basically the companies operate independently and then their income feeds up into a holding company. So you could have a customer that's getting an estimate from floor to window and door and then also central window. 100%. We compete against them every day. Wow. And we do that on purpose. You know, we share information and we do it on purpose. And we do that because it keeps the sales model honest. And we find that it basically incentivizes the competing salesmen against one another. So the, the performance levels go up. That's an interesting perspective that I wouldn't have thought about. You, you've essentially got, you know, both of your salespeople competing improving their performance for the same business. Yes, yes. That's exactly how we do it. So let's say you're looking to acquire a company. You know, you're thinking you're going to get into a new market. You are going to keep them running as separate entities. 
And I'm guessing, you know, naturally from the way you describe it, you're going to keep a separate set of books and all that. Is there any overlap at all other than the actual flow through of funds? Yeah, we have overlap. So our payables department, our finance department, our payroll department, our human resource department are all held under corporate. We have corporate installation managers, field managers that are all corporate. And we share that corporate experience out among our branches and out among our salespeople. We have corporate sales meetings weekly and we require attendance in that meeting. That can obviously be done by Zoom or whatever the mechanism is we use at that particular time. But we are a big believer in spoke and wheel, which means that you know there's multiple spokes, but there's one office that's the wheel, and the wheel yes. is where corporate offices. So we do share resources. We do allocate overhead burden to branches based on call centers and, and other things just because corporate absorbs those costs and the branch has to participate in that in, in that cost. The other thing is, is that, you know, our marketing departments are aligned. So it's one marketing department for all three. So, you know, there's economies of scale, but I don't think you should buy a business on the, I think you should buy the business if you're looking for one, not for the economy of scale. I think you should do it because the numbers make sense individually. And then if you can create economies of scale after, or part of your due diligence, I think that's what your mindset should be. Because you know this business doesn't offer you tremendous economies of scale overall. You know you're not going to cut a thousand jobs from taking over one company, and nor do you want to. So, so look at the business as a standalone business. 100%. Would you acquire this, you know, as a standalone business, and then the you know any economy of scale advantage that you get is simply a kind of perk on the back end? Yes, I think that would be the right way to look at it. I think if you look at it any other way and, you know, again, in my business, and I'm assuming in yours as well, it's basically eat what you kill, right? So every day you're going into business with not an existing customer that's running automobiles through a manufacturer. You got to be able to sell every single day. Yes. So, and I don't think it's any secret that lead costs are not going down for most companies, if any. So you have to do what you can to harvest the lead. And I think that, again, that means that these companies have to operate efficiently and profitably. And oftentimes we find that, you know, the margins aren't right and therefore the pricing isn't right. So there's a lot of work that goes into it. I mean, you know, but do it because the business is a standalone. Don't do it because you think it's just going to add revenue to your business because it will make you, it will typically initially at least make you a little bit less efficient due to the burden of running the other business. 110% agree with everything you just said there, including what you said about lead costs and marketing. I know, you know, from my business, one of the things I've seen, and I've said this in other podcasts, is lead costs just keep going up and up and up every single year. It used to be five, eight years ago, online lead costs were relatively cheap, but now we've gotten into, you know, such a place where nearly everything is exploited. There's a lot of competitors on every digital marketing platform. And, you know, subsequently at the same time, more people are going to offline marketing as well. So while that's getting less exposure from the audiences, that's actually, you know, kind of increasing as well. Or the exposure is decreasing. The competition on those platforms is increasing from buyers, media buyers like us. Yeah. So lead costs just keep going up. It's not, not an easy world out there. And one of the big things we like to do is focus on increasing the customer lifetime value. Before we jump into that, one other thing I wanted to touch on on what you're talking about with acquisitions, we know, you know, kind of what you look for in these deals. 
we know you know how you run them as a standalone company how do you actually structure the deals so are you going for like a straight buyout or a percent of future sales or an earnout or you know a seller holding the note how do you like to structure them and what are you ideally looking for well okay so we don't do a buyout we basically will do a holdback as a percentage of misrepresentation bad debt you know bad inventory whatever the case may be we buy every company outright the two deals that we've done with Central Window and Veer and Indian River, they not only had a company, but they also had real estate. So we bought both. I spun out the real estate into another company that I own that holds my real estate. And then the companies themselves operate and pay rent to the management company of the real estate company. You know, I'm buying the companies for a certain multiple on earnings and each deal is different. So, you know, we're not financing them, we're buying them. And we feel that as a result of the fact that we can buy them, we can extract a better price. There are, you know, as everybody knows, there are tremendous opportunities or finance opportunities out there with the Small Business Administration specifically that can help you, you know, finance a purchase. And they're attractive programs. But again, some of them are a little bit more stringent than others and limit your ability to refinance down the road if you wanted to at a lower rate. So you have to look at it. I would encourage, you know, we have very good banking relationships as well. And we've been very fortunate from a cash flow perspective that we've saved an awful lot of money to be able to, to grow our business if the opportunity presents itself. That's so, awesome. You know, it's more luck. I mean, once you do one, you pretty much know what you're looking for in a second one. And then the third one becomes, yeah, I'm not interested because of these five reasons. But there's opportunity out there. And as we talked about, I think yesterday, I mean, my personal feeling is is there's going to be a lot more opportunity in six months probably than there is today, you know, just because of the condition of the economy and what people are doing. But there's options out there. So just to kind of recap there on what you said, as you mentioned a holdback, you're coming up with a straight buyout number of, say, a million dollars, paying them the cash, 800,000 up front you know, or in some way getting them, you know, direct 800,000 up front. And these are non-exact numbers, just hypothetical. And then holding back 200,000 for a period of six months, a year, et cetera. Yeah, it's usually six months. Usually six months. Six months. And, and the you. reason for that is, is that it just gives you an idea of, there's always something that comes up that you didn't find. I mean, an upset customer, an insurance claim, bad inventory. You know, if you can't figure it out by six months, I mean, in my opinion, it shouldn't be that much money anyway. So, you know, you're going to lose. I mean, we had one deal. I can't remember which one it was, but there, there was one of the, an insurance claim for like 20 grand. He didn't disclose it. I think the owner forgot about it candidly and it popped up. Fortunately, it popped it up within the six months. Yeah. You know, so that comes off the holdback. There was a bad receivable that they couldn't collect. Comes off the holdback. And then what we did on the receivables was we assigned whatever the credit is back of the holdback, you then assign to the previous owner so that if he can collect it, he can take the money. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing I would say to you, Corey, is you can't be a pig. Like, you, you, you got to be fair. I mean, at the end of the day, most likely, depending on the size of the company that we're looking at, you're not dealing with a dumb owner. I mean, you're dealing with somebody who's mm-hmm. somewhat sophisticated. 
maybe not to the extent that we are or somebody else maybe, but they've been in the business a long time. They know how much money they're taking out, you know, yeah. between their car insurance and their health and their health insurance and their cars and their wife and whatever. You just got to be realistic. I like that you say that because a lot of times people that I speak to, and they're not so much trades owners I, or trades business owners, but they own businesses in other fields. You know, they, they always try to work out these deals that, you know, just seem so unfair to the actual trades business owner. And I haven't heard of any of them materializing. You know, you kind of hear a lot of chatter about it, but I, and a lot of people claim that they make these deals, you know, where they put no money down and payment is based on a percentage of sales over X number of years. And I hear about all these things, but I've never actually seen one person, never seen one person that has actually orchestrated that. When you put yourself in the chair of, the seller who, you know, who has built a successful business, you have to think, why would somebody even do that type of deal? I mean, you know, why not just run the business for another four years and then, you know, wind it down and close it up? And then they would have came out ultimately ahead without the headache of having to deal with a buyer that's trying to nitpick and negotiate everything downward. So I really appreciate that fact. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, I mean, we, again, going back to a deal we recently looked at, you know, one of the challenges that you have specifically as it relates to business brokers is business brokers historically really don't understand the home improvement industry. Yeah. So when they approach us with a deal, their multiples are so crazy. And then you give them back the multiple that it should be. And they're like, well, you're crazy. And then you give them the reasons why. And they typically say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. So, you know, and then historically with us, it's been like, okay, they think I'm crazy. Then they hang up. And then a week or two later, I get a phone call back saying, oh, you know what? We're, we want to revisit this deal. And listen, you got to negotiate the deal to the benefit of your side. But I do yes. think that you do want to make a deal. Those deals that you mentioned don't exist. I agree. I think it's fabrication. Yeah. But if you want to make a deal, I think you have to be equitable to both sides. Because the other thing to keep in mind is the employees are loyal to the previous owner. So they're looking at it saying, especially if they've been there a long time, they're looking at it saying, if you take care of that previous owner, I'm going to assume that you're going to take care of me. And I think it's an important thing because again, going back to what I originally said to you, you're buying the company for the people, not the owner, for the people. And those people you're going to rely on later to build your company to whatever you think you can do in the future. But if you're not buying the company because of the people, then don't buy the company because you're just spending money for no reason. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to recognize that the owner is going to talk to his ex-employees and say, yeah, this guy's a good guy. This guy's a bad guy. Watch out here. Watch out there. And you need the buy-in from the owner in the beginning in order to... To get the buy-in from your employees or from their employees. Correct. Correct. Scott, you and I could go back and forth on this stuff all day long. I know that for sure. We're about out of time here. So let's see, before we wind it down, Scott, we know, you know about your business, how it grew to where it is. You know, give us the quick two minutes of where you're looking to grow this business. You know, when we catch up in two years from now, what are you looking to see for yourself in Florida window and door? Two years from now, I would expect to be on the West Coast in multiple locations and possibly along the Carolinas, you know, those areas. I think we have the model and the sales methods and the infrastructure to be able to do that. And that's really what we're planning. I don't really like to put a dollar volume on volume because I think that it's all- well, Those are some big markets, the West Coast of Florida and the Carolinas, but there's, a, there's some serious volume to be had there. There's good opportunity. Again, we don't have to be the biggest. We'd like to be the most profitable. That's really what I look at. 
So yeah. that's our plan. And, and if it comes through, like we have a very good management team and we have very good team members. And I think we have the opportunity to do that. We just have to implement. And if we can continue in our strategic plans and continue to improve, we'll be there. Good stuff, Scott. Thanks for sharing all that today on the Contractor Momentum Podcast. I enjoy it. Thanks for the time. That's a wrap on this episode of the Contractor Momentum Podcast. If you got something helpful or useful out of this podcast episode, do me a favor here. Pick up your phone, open up the podcast app, whichever one you use, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and give us a review. I love hearing your feedback. And of course, if you have any questions for my guest or myself, head on over to the Contractor Momentum Lounge Facebook group and drop a new post.